I'm challenging people to reconsider this idea of violent crime so that we can reduce sentencing. What's the fair sentence for someone who's dealing marijuana and has a knife in his pocket? Does that deserve five years? Does that deserve 10 years? Is that a violent crime? It's becoming more and more obvious everywhere that criminal justice is maybe the most obvious example of systemic racism we have. Inform, inspire, and evolve. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind. Join host Lindsay Simons in a friendly conversation about contributing to good as we bring together community, positivity, and energy to the business of generosity. Welcome your host, Lindsay Simons. Hello, and welcome to the Creating Community for Good podcast. This is Lindsay Simons, your host, and I'm thrilled to announce that this is the 45th episode, and I just passed one year of doing podcasting. It's been quite a learning experience, and it's really opened my heart and my mind to wonderful conversations, new ideas, and elements of connection with others that do make me feel more connected to community. And I hope that you feel the same way as a listener. If you have feedback for me or comments, always know that I'm very welcome to those and I want to hear from you. I have received some good feedback, some good news that I am getting better at this. But I also want to celebrate some of those first guests that I did when I wasn't very polished in podcasting. I I still have a lot to learn, to be honest. But by guess and by golly, I'm going through it and I'm loving what I'm doing. So I hope that this is meaningful to you as well. This episode is not really a fundraising strategy toolkit concept. Although Lindsay Simons Consulting is predominantly focused on capital campaigns, feasibility studies, talent training, and board development, the podcast is not so much meant to be only focused on my professional experience, but it really is meant to be a heartfelt conversation about creating community and building empathy through conversation and discovery of different voices and ways people are contributing. So this conversation is really about the topic that we need to discuss as Americans. It's the social justice system. So we need to be listening to people's stories. We also need to be understanding the complexities of where did our criminal justice system come from and where is it now and where is it going? At the end of the day, equity and inclusion policies are the right strategies. But at the core of it all, it's about radical empathy. And that's what Shanti talks about. Shanti Bright Bryan is my guest today, and I'm thrilled to introduce you to her. She just recently produced her first book. She's also a criminal defense attorney by trade and a co-founder of an organization called The Fog Break Justice. Shanti's book, Almost Innocent, From Searching to Saved in America's Criminal System, is a chronicle of Shanti's story as a mother, a recovering NFL wife, and a lawyer to criminals. She has various stories throughout the chapters and weaves the message of how messy and tragic the criminal system can often be. So let's figure out how we can make the system more fair, more humane, and more just. Shout out to Suzanne McKechnie-Clark as she introduced me to Shanti. Thank you for that introduction. And she and Shanti were law school colleagues and dear friends still today. 
Shanti is enrolled as a member of the Muscogee Creek Tribe and currently lives in the Bay Area with her three children. If you haven't read this book yet, I encourage you to do so. But before you do, don't go to Amazon, okay? Let's get real. We really need to be supporting our local stores, especially our bookstores. I can't tell you how much I care about this. Shout out to Alan Frosch, the co-owner and chief community officer at Tattered Book Cover, one of the most beloved and historic bookstores in all of Colorado. So buy from there or buy wherever you buy books that are not online or not from Amazon. And no great offense to Amazon. It's just that I really want to promote and preserve bookstores. Okay, so with that, I also want to make a comment that there were some outtakes. After the interview, I asked Shanti what her experience was like being interviewed. And I would say it's worth listening to because it's sort of funny to hear the human element and some of the interesting interpretations and the back and forth. It's a little bit more offline kind of conversation. Also, something that's worth exploring that's not really the focus of this podcast, but I do want to make mention of is both nonviolent communication techniques and restorative justice strategies. Those are two that I learned at a young age. Thank you very much to my mother who is dedicated to these causes and to these techniques for restoring our community. So it's NVC, nonviolent communication, and restorative justice. If you are an expert in either of those two or you know somebody who is, then please let me know because I'd like to talk to you about that and perhaps have you on the show. So be sure to stay tuned for the last five minutes and welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind with the intention to inform, inspire, and evolve. Let's go. So Shanti, thank you so much for being here on Creating Community for Good podcast. Let me just start by giving you the mic and Please share with me, what is your journey to where you are today as the founder of Fog Break and a new author of Almost Innocent? Tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got here. Whoa, shall we go way back or just Let's a do little it. Back? Let's go deep. It's been a Let's long, go deep. winding road. <laughs> well, I, I always wanted to really to be an attorney. And to help people. And I had a little bit of a like justice fantasy going on where I was going to save people from employment discrimination, horrible cases of discrimination and wrongness of all sorts. For a while, I was very interested in disability rights work. And then in law school, I really discovered just a really compelling interest in the criminal justice system. And I spent a little bit of time in San Quentin one summer. And in particular, that summer, I I helped a man who the prison said was married. He was not married. And I helped him work that out so that he could get married. And it was such a really small thing to do, but it impacted his life so much and was so important to him. And it was a small but compelling just story of humanity. And I just was drawn to sort of the otherworldliness of prisons and incarceration and the criminal justice system and drawn to the human stories there. 
And that seemed a lot more compelling than doing depositions in a litigation between company A and company B and working 10 years for that. And then they settled for millions of dollars and then that's the end of it. So that was not interesting to me, but this idea of criminals, there's probably no other group more otherized in our society. So I I took a little bit of a longer path, but ultimately I became a criminal defense attorney on the appellate level. So people who had already been convicted of crimes, I was their attorney. And I did that for a long time. And I represented people the longer I was in it, the later in the criminal justice cycle I got, I started specializing in habeas corpus litigation, which actually happens after the appeal. And I was often in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, which would be the step right below the U.S. Supreme Court. So the very, very end of a criminal justice journey is where my clients and I would come together. And I did that until the point that my heart broke is the very simple way to say it. I had a couple of cases that I really thought I would win, even though typically on appeal, we don't win. The system's set up like that. And at the same time, my husband's company was had become involved in an investigation of someone, a consultant who had worked for them, and there was potential criminal liability. And my world just sort of collapsed, right? My family life and my career. And I was representing people sentenced to 77 years in prison, what I thought was unfairly, and at the same time, having my family potentially be involved in that kind of system really shook me and inspired me to start writing and writing the stories of my clients and my own story and my husband's story. And that led to Almost Innocent, the book that just came out. It's a beautiful book. I want to shout out to you. Thank you. And thank you for the note as well. I appreciate that you sent this to me during my move. It was, <laughs> it's a beautiful journey. And I see why you say heartbreaking. I don't know that I could ever do the kind of intensity of work that you do. So I have hats off to you and I'm thankful to you because it's important work. And it was written sort of like a memoir, as well as a confessional, as well as a critical look on society and, and the function of the social, the criminal justice system. I learned a lot in there and I was captivated by the stories that you shared of some of your, your clients and your own family. I had to laugh just on the lighter note that you were talking about going into the, <laughs> I don't know if it was San Quentin. I believe I'm wrong on that one, but I'm not remembering the fact which jail you were going into and you were walking in and it dawned on you that you were wearing a bra with an underwire and that you were going to get potentially turned around for that. And what an incredibly personal touch to the professional work that you're doing here. And I love how you wove in that personal journey and experience as a mom, as a wife, as a mother, the role that you played with your husband, and then the shark, if you will, in in a kind way, 
for justice, advocating for, for these folks who've been already deemed wrong and cast out of society. Uh, oh, the underwire. Just <laughs> you regret that so badly. I mean, it could just make your whole day visit oh. in the prison just go really, really wrong and you don't make it there on time and your client's been expecting you potentially waiting for years oh to get gosh. you and then you can't and get you in. The wrong thing. Yeah. So uh, that's Folsom State Prison. Wow. They Folsom, have that's a, what it was. They have a museum of all of the weapons that have been made from things like the underwire. No. I mean, I just think talking about a bra is like, how real is that? And and what was it like to be a female representing? I mean, most of your clients were male in the book. And, you know, how does gender play a role in your professional services? I don't really think about that very much. It's an interesting question. I, um, I think that typically criminal defense attorneys are typically men, and maybe that's the expectation. Although on the appellate level, we mostly were in writing, writing briefs. I chose to do oral argument in almost every single case, but many attorneys don't. Appellate attorneys tend to be a little more, more bookish, more shy perhaps and that's why they choose the field but I I liked to have that personal connection with the judges and the argue and advocate for my clients in person so yeah I mean being a woman in this field is is not typical but it's not atypical either and I feel like I did talk about in the book uh, somewhat Part of it might have been more my youth than my gender, but real sense of nervousness and uncertainty when the stakes are so high. So when my client's life essentially is on the line in so many cases, and even if it's not a life sentence or a very long sentence, the consequences for a criminal conviction are so severe that the pressure of that really got to me and I I felt that immensely. Yeah. What's your why? Why do you do this work? I mean, it's, it is so, the pressure is tremendous and what a great gravity of responsibility. What has brought you to this space? I think that it's a confluence of factors. I grew up in a family that had a lot of different aspects to it that I think we also, I felt like we were othered, I guess. It's it's a weird way to say it, but let's say, so my grandmother was a paraplegic and in a wheelchair. And I remember vividly how we did not have access like to the grocery store. We didn't have access was before the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that somewhat inspired my interest in working for disabled rights. But my, I grew up with a single mom. My father has mental illness, is really disabled by mental illness. My father's family 
is Native American. I'm an enrolled member of the Muscogee tribe. I also grew up somewhat like a brother. My uncle has Down syndrome and lived with me growing up. And so there were a lot of these experiences of being somewhat part of communities that really didn't have much of a voice. And so I feel like that led me somewhat to this this work in criminal justice and also somewhat to my work as a writer and as an author and just the vital importance of sharing the human stories of people that don't have that opportunity. And I I felt like I got to do that in my criminal appellate work uh, simply by trying to humanize my clients for the judges as much as I could to really turn their legal case into a story that, because that's how we make connections, right? That's how we connect with people is by hearing their stories, learning their stories. And I, I think that's what draws me to this work is I'm a storyteller and I'm a story listener. The podcast is all about creating community. So I'm hearing you and feeling curious to know, do you believe that your work is actually creating a sense of community by advocating and telling the story of those who have been muted? Or is it something else that brings you a sense of connectedness? What does community mean to you? Yeah, community means I belong here. I'm welcomed here. I feel connected to the other people that are here. And I hope that 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 through my book and through storytelling, I do create a sense of community. Um, in pretty broadly defined there. But yeah, I hope to create a sense of urgency for people to feel connected to this issue, feel that this is an issue. If you care about social justice, if you care about the well-being of our communities, this is an important issue to pay attention to. I more explicitly, I think, create community and and try to create equitable, thriving communities through my newer work with Fog Break Justice. So we tell us about Fog Break. Yeah, so Fog Break, um, we work uh, with communities that are trying to create equitable outcomes. They're trying to build community trust especially in criminal justice agencies. And it's very important to us, this sense of we are in this together as a community to, to, to thrive, to listen to each other, to connect, to, to value each other for all aspects of our diversity. Criminal justice is a very complex ecosystem. If you could pinpoint the biggest challenge in the system and your view of the solution, what would it be? Oh, that's, that's a hard question there. That's like a lifelong journey (laughs) there, isn't it? That's a whole whole series, perhaps. Perhaps. I guess I would sort of generalize in two ways. One, the system's too big and two, the system is unfair. So it's, incredibly, it's the biggest, you know, 
incarceration system in the world. We incarcerate more people than any country in the world, including China, Russia. And we just are addicted to criminalizing behaviors. So I think it's really clear now. I think it's becoming really clear to many more people that we have to really shrink the system, make it radically smaller, decriminalize poverty and homelessness and mental illness and drugs and addiction. We really have to start thinking of alternatives to incarceration. So once we do that, though, there's still something left there. So really challenging people to reconsider this idea of violent crime. And so that we could start thinking about reducing sentences. So that's another way we could reduce the size of the system. So I had one client, for example, who was sentenced to four life sentences plus 70 years. So what does that even mean? (laughs) What does that even mean? And if you think of yourself or your partner or your son being sentenced to one month, two months, six months in prison, how absolutely devastating that would be if you really, really think about that. Mm. So I'm challenging people to reconsider this idea of violent crime so that we can reduce sentencing. Because what's the fair sentence for someone who's dealing marijuana and has a knife in his pocket? Does that deserve five years? Does that deserve 10 years? Is that a violent crime? So that would be another thing we could do. And then, like I said, once it's significantly reduced, we have to address the inherent bias. And it's becoming more and more obvious to people everywhere that criminal justice is maybe the most obvious example of systemic racism we have. So the bias there is is baked into the system. It reinforces itself. Mm-hmm. And we have to find ways to address that. I mean, that's a whole nother podcast, but that is that has to be really taken on. It has to be taken on by the criminal justice agencies and professionals that are working there. And maybe that is because everyone's demanding that they do that, right? Now is definitely the time. People are in the streets demanding fairness. And in your book, you begin with painting a picture of the privilege that your husband has had as a white NFL player and then in a white collar business person next to the next chapter goes straight into a story where there are language translation challenges. And it's a Hispanic family that you're defending that is clearly innocent, but deemed proven guilty. And what do you see as the, what's the heart of the bias training that you're trying to incorporate? I mean, for one, as an outsider, somebody who's not trained the way you are, the way I read this was to say, like, let's first just recognize the contrasts of privilege and our biases of race, language, 
you know, that's where I got into the gender concept with you, you know, even just what you're wearing as a female, which would be different than what a man might be wearing. What is your thought on how do we bring more of that bias training or awareness to our community that it's obviously, like you said, the streets are demanding it. So what's the step towards progress that we can provide? Really, I think there's two methods for doing this. One is really creating systems that prevent or greatly, greatly reduce discretion. So discretion, police have enormous discretion. Prosecutors have enormous discretion. Judges somewhat less, but still some. And it's just proven, studies show that the lesser amount of discretion, the less bias will come into those decisions. So however that might be, putting in systems to reduce discretion. Um, One great example, I think, is the Oakland Police Department. With advice and counsel from Jennifer Eberhardt, who's the preeminent scholar out of Stanford on bias, and particularly race bias, and as it relates to criminal justice. And she implemented a very small little discretion check where police had to state the reason that they were stopping someone or pulling them over, along with their demographic information. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. And so what happened was a 40% decrease in the stops or wow of African Americans in Oakland. 40% decrease because they're just blatantly calling out. Because they have to say why they're stopping them. They have to say why they're stopping them. They do not have discretion to stop. Just go for it, right? Any black man driving down the street. We hate to say that that's a reality, but it is. Right. And so the, the police officer is it knows that he has to be accountable to his decision to stop this person. And maybe it just takes that second thought to say, oh, I, I don't have a reason and I'm not willing to put race down as the reason. And so I think it's putting systems like that in check. I also recommend just wide scale education on systemic racism and and the relationship between the criminal justice system and race going back to slavery and going back to the very first establishments of police departments essentially were related to slavery. And I think when people start to have that sense of time and history and meaning, it it can change you. It can change your perspective. It can bring a new perspective to your role in the system. So I think we have to have both like policies, policy change and changing hearts and minds. Do you believe in defunding the police? I think that it's an unfortunate term that's become popular. So I I personally am not like an anarchist and I and I do think there is a limited role for what we now consider, you know, a traditional kind of police department. I think um like I said about just reducing the size of the criminal justice system I think it's a very good idea to limit their role 
if they must be armed, it is a good idea to limit the interactions between armed police officers and community members. So for instance, people having a mental health crisis, people that are unhoused, people who are addicted to drugs and acting out because of those addictions. I'm not in favor of police in schools. So I think if you say, if you talk about defunding as in reducing the scope and the discretion of police officers, I would like to reduce their uh, use of weapons and sort of the militarization of the police. So in that way, I I support limiting uh, police. Yes. I I don't know if defunding is quite the right word. I mean, I prefer something like (laughs) reimagining. Yeah. Connection. This comes back to community. Mm -hmm. Police officers need to be connected to their communities and know who they serve and walk around and know people's needs. Mm. How can they serve? How can they make these communities safer for everyone there? Mm. And besides their role, they are members of community. They do take off their hats and go home to their family and go to the grocery store like all of us do and live in the same neighborhoods in a neighborhood that that is part of our country. And so, yeah, I do think it is, it's interesting how 2020, there's such a social awakening and another wave of a demand for justice, which is beautiful and important. But alongside, I hate to see too many casualties and to uh, the catchphrases that might be perhaps too limited in scope of what we're trying to do, too simplified, not complex enough. So I appreciate your take on on that and reimagine the police as a, not as catchy, I'll tell you, but I do hear what you're saying. And I fully agree with that. And so what is something that a listener might be able to take away from this conversation that he or she might be able to contribute to creating a more positive space to have community and to understand those who are on the outside and who've been othered through criminal justice? I think... This is maybe not specific in this, but listen to their stories. Pay attention. Mm. There are millions of people everywhere that have been involved in the criminal justice system, right? They're coming home to our communities every day. And they're your friends and they're your neighbors, um, right? I mean, a lot of people are involved in the criminal justice system. So know them know their stories, get proximate to the issue would be what Brian Stevenson would recommend. Meaning if you care about the issue, how can you get a little bit closer to it? So I feel like my book in a way does that. It brings, it shares the stories. It sort of creates a little empathetic connection. But could you get closer? Could you you know, work in a restorative justice program in your kid's high school? Could you mentor kids that have been arrested, but they're on a, in a diversion program? Can you volunteer for, you know, there's reentry programs. So many people are coming out of prison and reentering 
our communities? How can you help them? Um, and I mean, more policy political angle would be know who you're voting for, for your district attorney. Most district attorneys are elected officials and know who you're voting for. It's one of the most crucial people that you are electing that makes the biggest impact on your community, your county. So it's a that's a very small community. I really highly recommend knowing who you're voting for, DA, and even your sheriff are often elected officials. Know what's happening in, in your smaller communities. Mm-hmm. Yep. Impact change where you can and otherwise learn and be aware. Try to do your own homework on building consciousness about the systems and the ways that we're we're all co-creating so that we can evolve over time. That's right. That's right. And I guess I'd say more generally, maybe small acts of anti-racism. So if criminal justice is a system of racial oppression, then the way to fight that is to become anti-racist. Buy your books from a Black-owned bookstore. You know, on Grubhub, you can, it now notes that you can order from a Black-owned restaurant. Reading books, yes, but could can you do more than that? What can your company do? You own a business. What can your company hire people that were formerly incarcerated? So small and larger acts of anti-racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What brings you hope, Shanti? Hmm. Well, specific to criminal justice, I am hopeful. Because people are in the streets, people are paying attention. I've been paying attention to this for 20 years. And it's like, oh, thank God, people are seeing and caring because people are dying, but people have been dying for all these years. And so I'm hopeful that people are paying attention and caring and that we can sustain this energy in order to make change. And there are people changing. I mean, there's progressive prosecutors are being elected across the country. So Chessa Bodine in San Francisco, Kim Fox in Chicago, Larry Krasner just got reelected in Philadelphia yesterday, I think. So I'm hopeful for that. I'm hopeful um, that people are making small changes. I'm hopeful the first step passed and this is sort of becoming a bipartisan issue. So that gives me a little bit of hope. I am hopeful that people are starting to address health crisis with community services instead of through policing. That seems to really be taking on. I'm hopeful that bail reform is happening. Less and fewer and fewer people are being stuck in prison or jails because they can't afford, you know, $500 bail. But we're getting a lot of attention on that. I'm hopeful that this COVID, the lockdown of COVID gave people like a tiny glimpse into what it's like to have your freedoms totally restricted. And that perhaps that can build some 
empathy, some human connection between us <laughs> on the outside and them on the inside. Yeah, right. So the the us them the bad guy the good guy bad guy the black white dichotomies can we can we see all the gray in between i'm ho- i'm hopeful that we're we're starting to do that yeah absolutely if there is one cause or idea or person that you would like to shine light on at the Using now that you've got the mic, you know, is there anything that you would like to make sure the listeners check out? They either send light and love to that person or they Google the website or anything. It's your choice, Shanti. So, what's one thing that you just want to shine the light on? You mean besides my book? It could certainly be your book. If you would like to shine light on this baby that you have produced and the hard work that's gone into your soul's journey of creating the book, then let's do that. Yeah. I I can only imagine. I am not an author. I had been growing this baby for 10 years. Woo. And it was a lesson in perseverance and grit and something that I learned from my clients. So something I learned from them was stay the course. Don't give up hope keep going, uh, look inward, persevere. And their stories are in this book and their stories, my relationship with them saved me in so many ways. And I, I think that sense of human connection is immeasurably important. And so I'm going to shine light on my, my baby called Almost Innocent and I think the power of sharing, recognizing human, this sense of human fallibility, we all have it and we're all in this together. So that's the message I want to send out, radical empathy and human connection. Oh, I love that. Well, and that's the whole essence of this podcast is to hear stories like yours and the other guests that I've had on, because I do believe that we are all in this together and understanding each other's journeys is core to figuring out how we're going to get through this together. So I've really enjoyed the book. And while this is not a, a podcast about book reviews, I am really thrilled to advocate for the book and to shine the light on it and encourage friends and listeners to read it, digest it, and consider how they might take action to create more justice in this society that we're all hoping to, you know, inch by inch improve. Radical acceptance, radical, what did you say? Radical empathy? Love that. Radical empathy. Let's make that the podcast title for the this episode. Let's do it. <laughs> Radical empathy with Shanti Bryan. Great. <laughs> Shanti means peace in Hindu. It does. Om. Om Shanti. Shanti, Shanti. <laughs> Thank you, Shanti. I appreciate you. I'm glad that your name is uh, representative of your life's journey towards bringing more peace towards others. And I hope that you have peace inside as well as I see you're a light bearer for so many. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing so much with so many. 
We're all doing our best. That'll wrap up the podcast there. So just a few closing notes for you. Yeah. I loved it. And thank you. And I am, I'm so happy to know you now. And I hope that I will see you again someday and, or see you in person, hopefully one of these days, either way, just stay in touch. It was really, did you enjoy this? Yeah, I did. Yeah, it was fun. Oh, good. What did you like about it? How does it feel to be on the other end of an interview? Well, it's just, it's, I mean, the truth is, it's just fun to talk about yourself. (laughs) That is the truth. (laughs) Everybody enjoys that. Yeah. Because it's like, I spend my life thinking about these issues. Like, this is my life work. And like to have someone say, tell me about your life's work. It's what you want. It's it's what you want your partner to do. <laughs> I was going to say your best friends to do. I mean, that's the way you make connection is to say, oh, please tell me more about you and what you, you know, are passionate about. Oh, like man. everyone wants that. It's so true. Everybody does want that. And I was on a um, call earlier today and somebody said that there was a study. She didn't cite the study, so I can't say, but if you were offered money or five minutes to talk about yourself, more often than not, folks chose to talk about themselves because it is important to be seen and we make so much effort to strive and we do fall. I love how you said we're all fallible. And we all do every day. Like me, you know, I, I mixed up your husband's name. I called him Brian instead of Doug. And it's like, oh, what a great way to start a conversation with my guest, you know? And it's the silliest, teeniest thing. But what makes up the ecosystem or the, yeah, the system of the brain, the sense of identity, sense of joy or connection or desire to thrive, it comes back to one's journey and like seeing yourself as good, seeing yourself as worthwhile seeing your work as worthwhile despite all those mistakes that we make big and little despite the tiniest ones and the biggest ones yeah well i don't know even though this was really just like the outcut i might even have to capture this too and put it in the podcast too okay that uh, sounds good too <laughs> well i would be happy to sit and listen more <laughs> thank you for letting me talk about myself for half an hour. You are most welcome. Thank you for your work, seriously. And I would love to sit and learn more. And, and I will ask that question. Tell me more. <laughs> this was fun, Lindsay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was fun. Okay. Bye. Thank you again for tuning into this week's episode with Shanti Bright Brian about how we create community by including all members of society and checking ourselves when we start to put people in boxes with labels. Thanks again to Suzanne McKechnie-Clark of Maya Kama Partners for introducing me to Shanti. If you liked what you heard, let me know. I always love to hear feedback and comments, whether they're criticisms or support, all are welcome. I'm in a learning process, certainly as a new podcaster, but I do say that I do this from the heart and it is a lot of joy for me. So send me a message on LinkedIn or follow me on Instagram. I'm really trying to build up my Instagram. Creating Community for Good is my handle and follow me there. Also, if you haven't done so yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcast. When Wednesday rolls around, please be sure to consider joining me on Clubhouse at 8 a.m. Pacific Time or 11 Eastern Time. We have a weekly fundraising nonprofit chat. We get into a lot of techniques and strategies around nonprofit management, 
fundraising, equity, topics, etc. All are welcome. And if you're curious about a topic or if you'd like to be a guest either at Clubhouse or here on the podcast, please let me know and go to www.creatingcommunityforgood for more information about this podcast and all the podcasts. Thank you and shine on. With this latest valuable episode, we'd love to thank you for joining us on the Creating Community for Good podcast. If you found today's show valuable, simply visit our website, creatingcommunityforgood.com to leave a review as well as to get access to additional resources and relevant links from this show. Stay tuned for more episodes.